If you're like me, some of you are, some of you aren't. But if you're like me, you might like The Hobbit, right? You guys remember Bilbo? You remember at the beginning, um, and I'm, not gonna, I'm gonna refer to the film because I've read the book a couple times, but it's, I watch the film all the time, so it's, it's fresh up here. And you remember when they're, they sh the dwarves show up at his house, and Bilbo's this little hobbit, and uh, the, the wizard Gandalf is there, and they're all deciding on um, going about this great venture of theirs. They're gonna go to a mountain on the other side of the world, and they're gonna slay a dragon and take back this mountain for the dwarves, and uh, they uh, tell Bilbo that he's gonna be part of the party. And Bilbo's, you know, taken aback, right? And, and they have a contract to help explain the terms, and he opens up the contract, and then, you know, the fine print kind of starts falling off the page. And, uh, you know, he, evisceration, laceration, incineration, and, and he passes out uh, and falls on the floor. But I think uh, that was necessary for him to understand what he was really getting into before going on that great venture. And I think any good and reasonable, reasonable person is going to ask those sorts of questions before moving forward in any sort of venture. You know, how long is it going to take uh, if I'm going to go on vacation with my kids, how long is it going to take to get there in the plane or in the car? Because we might not go if it's too long, right? Who else is going? You know, who's going to pay for it? What risks are involved? Better yet, why are we doing this in the first place? Is there another way to accomplish the same thing, right? Until you get certain questions answered, there's really no point moving forward. Um, unless you're a risk taker and you're really into that sort of thing. But when it comes to this passage, I think there are some important questions that surface. As we read that, I'm, I'm sure you had some questions come to mind, things that are imperative to our understanding of who God is and how he interacts with man and really has, has to do with his character. And I think uh, I'll, I'll deal with the lesser question first, and then we'll move on to the greater question. But the lesser question, I don't know if you noticed here in this passage, is the question, does God make mistakes? Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you love his word, then you're probably not inclined to think that he makes any kind of mistake. But it's interesting because this passage has a, a contradiction or an apparent contradiction in it. In verse 11 and verse 35, it said that the Lord regretted he made Saul. And the word there for regret is nakam in Hebrew. It means to be sorry. It means to console oneself. And it describes how God felt about making Saul king. In verse 11, it says, I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. In verse 35, he concludes this chapter saying, until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, what does it mean that the Lord had regretted making Saul king? Well, it's different than my regrets and your regrets. God does not make mistakes and kick himself afterwards like, ah, I should have done that. I should have put stock in Amazon years ago. I knew it. I should have done it. He's not like that. You know, we look back at life and we have regrets over our decisions. I should have moved. I should have stayed. I should have taken that job. I had the chance. I should have stayed in that relationship. I shouldn't have started that relationship. I shouldn't have opened that credit card. It's usually always true. Or maybe it's as simple as, I should have listened to the Lord. Anybody else should have listened to the Lord that one time? 
the first time I felt called to the ministry, I was in high school. And it was towards the middle of my senior year, and I had to, you know, everybody asks you, what are you going to do with your life? And you're, you know, you're 17 years old, and it's really important to decide what you're going to do with your life right then. It's going gonna, it's gonna to change everything, right? And I remember it was one of the first times I, I got on my knees in my bedroom by myself, and I prayed and asked the Lord, you know, because it's an important decision. I was a believer at the time. Lord, what do you want me to do with my life? And I remember there on my knees, I felt like God said, I want you to go into the ministry. And I got up off my knees and ended the prayer meeting right there, right? No, thank you. That's not for me. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to do something good. I'm going to go to school and I'm going to get my education and do something else, anything else than that. And I felt as I was getting up and walking away from that prayer meeting, that the Lord said, okay, Drew, but it's going to be more difficult afterwards. And uh, I didn't ask him for clarification. I just left it there. And, and so I went on to do a good thing. Maybe not the best thing for me. I went to school, a Christian school. I met lots of smart people there. Made lifelong friends. I got to play baseball. And, uh, but my second year into that school, I started becoming restless. Do you ever not do what the Lord told you to do and you just are restless? You're uneasy. My grades were good. I was doing well at baseball, but the Holy Spirit inside me was convicting me that I was supposed to be involved in church. That call was still there. I couldn't shake it. The Word of God says the, the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. So um, I remember to make extra money, I would go clean bathrooms at night from 9 to 11 every night. So after classes, I'd go to baseball practice, and after baseball practice, I'd eat dinner, and, and I'd do homework until I cleaned bathrooms at, from, from 9 to 11 at night, and then I'd come back, and I'd still have homework left, and I'd try to do my homework, and then I would go down to the basement in my dorm. It was a Christian college, and there was a prayer room there. Turns out, at college, the prayer room's almost always empty. So I'd go into the prayer room, and I'd fight with God. I'd wrestle with him like Jacob in the wilderness. I'd argue with him and make excuses and justify myself telling God I was being responsible and doing good things. But God wasn't interested in good things. He's interested in obedience. And one day, I remember at batting practice, I was still just vexed inside. I was, I was up at the plate and I was swinging and missing and the coach was throwing bad pitch after bad pitch, and he finally threw a good pitch right down the middle, and, and I froze up, and I didn't swing. And have you ever just lost it? I just lost it. I chucked my bat. I chucked my helmet. I started cursing. I did. And I went directly to the fence, because I knew I was supposed to run laps at that point. <laughs> and everybody was like, what's wrong with Drew? right? And I remember running, and after practice, that they just thinking to myself, what are you fighting? Why are you so angry? And I just felt like I, I released myself to the Lord. And moving forward, it's like I honestly couldn't care if we won or lost, because I just wanted to follow the Lord. I finished out the season. I played hard, okay? 
But still, you don't, the guy on your team who doesn't care if he wins or loses, you don't want him on the team. So I told the coach that this was going to be my last season. I finished out the year there. And um, before the school year finished out, I, I was like, I'm going to go to church, and I want to try to get involved. And so I went to this church that I really felt the Lord was putting on my heart. It was a small church. They, they didn't have much help. And um, when I was there, they asked me, do you play music? And I said, my brother taught me some chords, but no. And they're like, if you learn how to play music, you can be on the worship team. They were desperate. Yeah, they were desperate. And, um, and you know what was perfect was back home, we had two guitars. Uh, my brother had a guitar, and then we had another old guitar. And so I was all excited. So I got home from college that summer. I was working construction uh, as a summer job. And, and I talked to my brother. I was like, hey, man, they told me at this church that if I learn guitar that I could be on the worship team, and so you've got to teach me guitar, and he's like, this is great, and so we're all excited, and we bust out the guitars, and uh, I start tuning up the guitar, the, the older one, and snap, the tuning peg just breaks, and we look at each other, and we're like, well, I guess it wasn't meant to be, because I had no resilience at that point in my life. And uh, so I went to work the next day, and my brother went to do whatever he did in life at that time. And, he, uh, and we got back, I got back that night, and he's like, hey, you'll never guess what happened today. I was like, what? And he goes, I went to the church, and the worship pastor called me into his office, and he said, the Lord told me that I need to give you my guitar. And he gave him a guitar, and he came home with another guitar that day. And he's like, so I can teach you guitar now. And so he taught me guitar, and I got to be on the worship team that next fall. And I think it, it's interesting because I had kind of given up, right? But the Lord didn't want me to run away. He didn't want me to give up. He kept putting it on my heart to go into the ministry. And so I started helping out at churches on Sundays. And, and that church, I mean, they were really desperate. They were like, Drew, do you want to start a youth ministry with your friend? And I was like, sure, as long as my friend's in charge. And so we started a middle school ministry there, which is great because you just make fun of kids and they make fun of you back. That's how middle school ministry works. And, um, and so um, one day, my friend, uh, he, he got a new girlfriend, and uh, he just wasn't interested in church anymore. Girls, come on. And... He's like, hey, you're going to need to do church today. Also, I'm not coming back again because I'm hanging out with my girlfriend. Said, so I was in charge of youth ministry at that point at this church. And I just was helping out on Sundays in worship. And then I'd go down and do middle school ministry. And I was having fun. But graduation came. And after I graduated school, the next logical step in that progression was to go to graduate school. So I counseled with my professors about the best programs to go into, and I came up with a list. And I, and I took that list, and I brought that list into the prayer room, that prayer closet. And, and I, I had the list, and I was like, Lord, which school do you want me to go to? Nothing. I didn't hear anything. It was like crickets. It's like the other day we were having a birthday party, and my, my son was like, hey, Dad, what time is the birthday party? And I was like, it's like 1 or 2. And he's like, AM or PM? 
And I asked him, what do you think? <laughs> he said, PM. It's like, that's good. Let's go with that. So I had this lesson. I asked the Lord, what do you want me to do? Crickets. Nothing. And I went down the list. I was like, okay, well, maybe I need to narrow it down for him. I was like, well, what about this one, Lord? Nothing. I went down the whole list, and it was nothing. And I said, well, I'll just apply for the school in state, and if I get in, and if I don't get any financial aid, then I just, I won't go to graduate school. I got, I, I applied, I got in, I didn't get any financial aid, I was like, that was the deal I made with God, so I'm not going to go, I'm just going to go get a job. So I moved to Spokane, because that's where you, you go to get a job, you got you to go to Spokane. Also, that's where my family was, so it was convenient, I had a place to live. I got a job, and I started coming to church here. And the Lord kept putting it on my heart that I needed to be involved. I kind of would just sit in the back of the room and listen. And the Lord was telling me, though, that I needed to be involved. So after a service one time when they had prayer, I made that long, embarrassing, vulnerable walk all the way down the aisle to the side here. And I, I prayed with somebody, and they encouraged me that, yeah, you should get involved. Um, and I started helping out over in youth ministry. Um, and eventually, a couple months later, they had a position open for an internship, and, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to do it, but I had just gone to school. I had a mountain of student loan debt, and interns, all they made was food and lodging, and I remember asking a, a person, I was like, I feel like the Lord wants me to do this, but I don't have any, I don't have, I have negative money. How's it going to work out? And they're like, if the Lord is asking you to do it, you should do it. Oh, that's how it works. Huh. So I finally said yes. I said yes to the ministry, and, and I regret that I didn't listen sooner. I mean, it was four years of wrestling and fighting with the Lord and racking up like $50,000 in student loan debt. And when he said it's going to be more difficult afterwards, I think it was possibly the debt part. Possibly it's difficult for you because if I had four more years of experience, I might be good at this point in my ministry. But by the grace of God, I was able to pay off debt. And my story, it's full of mistakes. It's, my story is full of regrets and missteps and shortcomings and embarrassments. But the Lord, he is so forgiving. He's so merciful. He gives me so many chances. Even Saul had many chances uh, before this instance here. But the Lord is different. The Lord doesn't make these kinds of mistakes. He's not subject to error or sin. His actions are just and perfect and right. He's never too busy or too overwhelmed or overbooked. He's never in over his head or outside of his area of expertise. He doesn't waver or wrestle in contemplation, worrying at night if he's made the right decision about something or wondering what he's going to do tomorrow. He's not like us in that regards. And that point is actually clarified in this passage. In verse 29 of this chapter, we're told that he who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. In regards to his word, he is truth. Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth. That is, every single word of God is true. And if you add them all together like you're reconciling a ledger, it all adds up and nothing is missing. It is all true. Every word. 
perfectly balanced. That's God's testimony in Scripture. But in, in regards to his actions, he is righteous. Deuteronomy 32 verse 4 says, He is the rock, his works are perfect, and all his ways are just. A faithful God who does no wrong, upright and just as he if I was able to observe every action of God, all his decisions, there would be nothing out of place, all perfectly just and right, nothing suspect. So naturally, we ask the question, if God does not regret, like he doesn't change his mind, then how does he regret in this passage? Because verse 29 that says he doesn't change his mind, that word for change his mind is nakam. It's the same word that is used for regret. But it's a sort of play on words, really, is what's happening here. God isn't like man in that he makes mistakes, but he is like us in that he shares emotions of pain. He shares with us the emotion of pain that he feels when a man or woman transgresses his word. God is a personal being. He has emotion. We're made in his image and likeness, and so we experience those same emotions only in a limited context, and our emotions are subject to impurity. We're subject to being wrong in our emotions. So in the passage when Saul, the king, goes too far, the Lord is grieved. The Lord made no mistake. He's asking for no mulligan, but he's saddened that Saul has chosen that which is evil in place of obedience to the Lord. You know, some of us don't understand that, that God has those emotions, that God has that love for his people and he grieves over people. We've been subject to strict, cold discipline throughout our lives. Some of us have been scarred by emotionally detached people in authority, maybe parent, mom, dad, maybe a coach, a teacher, or a boss, and it's scarred us. And we take that emotion and we try to apply it to other authority figures, including the highest authority, who is God. And so we think like deists, as if God is out there and he's detached from us. But in fact, God is deeply loved or moved with love for mankind. He's moved by compassion for you and for me. He loves man so much that he sent his son from heaven who got dressed in the flesh of man and, and went to the cross to display his love for us. So don't think that God is cold and distant. He came here, and he gives us his Holy Spirit. He went too far to be treated so flippantly. So God doesn't regret like we regret. So that's maybe one question you had from this passage. But a second question, which is much more clear, is this. It says that people, women, children, animals were, de were devoted to destruction. Did you read that? We read that together, right? The word there is karem in Hebrew. It's, it means to ban, to devote, to exterminate. I've listened um, to well-meaning Christian scholars. They look at this passage and they say, well, a good and loving God would never kill a community of people. So it's got to be saying something different here. These people must be getting exiled from the land, they must be becoming enslaved. I, I've, I've heard scholars say this on interviews. And the word can be used in that way. Karem can be used in, in the, you know, a devotion to the Lord. You set it aside, maybe. So maybe it could be possibly true in other ways, other contexts. But when you look at the passage here, it most definitely means extermination. The entire civilization 
being put to the sword. That's why when you read all the major translations of verse 3, they say, utterly de destroy, devote to destruction. And because beyond this, the writer adds the word, we hamata, which means to kill. It says, kill them. The Lord is communicating to Saul that he must devote them to destruction, Karim, by wahet mata, making sure everything is killed. Kill everything, devote it to destruction, so that there's no confusion about this passage here. And for many people, this order from God in Scripture is one of the most difficult, maybe the most difficult challenge in apologetics. Why would a good and loving God exterminate a civilization like this, including the children? I think there's a handful of uh, arguments and thoughts here that I want to go through in considering what's going on here. The first is that what's happening here is something that's limited in scope. Israel was never given permission to take land outside of Canaan throughout their history, nor was Israel perm permitted to wipe people out at will. God set boundaries as their inheritance in the world, from the Wadi of Egypt to the Euphrates, and from the Mediterranean to the Jordan Valley. It's interesting, if you go on and, and read the rest of Samuel, we come towards the end of 2 Samuel, uh, King David had expanded the borders of the kingdom of Israel to the extents that God had permitted. And, and then he began to count his soldiers. Now, typically, a king would do inventory of his fighting men prior to launching a military campaign. So there's many scholars who think that he was actually planning on expanding Israel's territory beyond that line that the Lord had set. And the Lord rebuked him. The Lord rebuked David for counting the men. The men had been counted at other times in their, in their history. But the Lord rebuked him for this evil and sent a plague to stop Israel. And so he didn't go out for war. Israel was constrained to the promised land. So we see that the destruction of the Canaanites was a limited thing for the Israelites. But also we see that military action is permissible in Scripture. Israel, as a nation among men, was permitted by God to take up arms just as the other nations did. So we must recognize that there's a principle at place here. It's the responsibility of good and meek men to protect their loved ones. This is both true on the family level, but also on larger scales, community levels and national levels. Throughout history, strong men have raised up their people to wage war against others, to take their things. Typically, they find some sort of false pretense for invasion, and then under the spellbinding ruse, they send their men off to die for the glory and plunder of the strong man. The Bible tells us that Nimrod, in Genesis, was the first man to do this. And we still have Nimrods running countries today. Men like Putin in Russia, a perfect example. And there's the smaller scale Nimrods who run local organizations, like drug cartels, sex tra trafficking rings, neighborhood gangs. So in light of a world of Nimrods, it's prudent for nations and local governments to arm themselves in defense of their people. I would go so far as to say that this is a self-evident responsibility from God. Three examples from the New Testament come to mind because that's where many pacifists challenge this idea. So in the New Testament and regarding the Old Covenant, 
we think about John the Baptist. Remember that Jesus said of John the Baptist that no one born of women was greater than him, though he who is born in the kingdom of God is greater than even John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, if we're thinking of the old covenant, John the Baptist is like almost like the culmination of it. He's the best, Jesus said. He's the greatest. And at one time, John was being asked by different people with different occupations advice of how they should carry out their jobs, how should, how should they carry out their lives. And during this time, he was asked by a group of soldiers, what should we do? And John the Baptist told them, don't extort people or accuse them falsely, but be content with your pay. Luke chapter 3, verse 14. Notice, John had the perfect opportunity to, to rebuke them, right? Notice he didn't tell them, quit your jobs because it's wrong to be a soldier. He could have. He had the opportunity. It was right there on a platter. He should have done it. He didn't do it. Instead, he encouraged them in their office of soldier to act with justice. Carry out this properly and rightly before the Lord. But it's not just John the Baptist. Jesus, while he was here on earth, said similar things. In the Last Supper, while making preparations for the Last Supper, Jesus asked his disciples if anybody was bringing a sword. And they did. In fact, they had two swords with them. And Jesus said, that should be enough. Another perfect opportunity for him to say, get rid of all swords. It's wrong to have a sword. But he didn't. And moving forward from this, in that Last Supper, later on during that meal, when he concludes the meal, he reminded them, do you guys remember when you were with me and you went out, I sent you out, and everything was provided. Everywhere you went, you didn't take money, you didn't take anything, the Lord just provided, it was miraculous. They're like, yeah, we remember that. And then he, he says in Luke twenty two thirty six, but now... If you have a purse, take it, and also a bag. And if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one. Wow. That's our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The original PPE, Jesus Christ. But Paul said a similar thing under, uh, under the New Covenant. So maybe you say, oh, that was before the church came into being. Well, after the church came into being, Paul, on just government in Romans chapter 13, verse 4, says, For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So what we see here is Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, telling us that the government has the responsibility to use weapons of violence to bring justice on evil people and wrongdoers. It's a sobering thought, but it's from the Lord. And it's something to be considered by those who brandish the sword with the deepest gravity. So military action is justifiable. But also what we see here in this passage is a unique judgment of God. And we see that unique judgment of God, not just on the Amalekites, but on the Canaanites in general, also called the Amorites. The Canaanites were descended from Ham. You remember with me, after Noah and his sons disembarked from the ark, I was trying to think of a pun there, disembarked ark. It's there. If you find the pun, 
let me know about it after service because I've, I've, been, I've been racking my brain for it. It's there. But he planted a vineyard. He got drunk. And his son Ham went into his tent and saw him passed out naked. Good job, Noah. Right? And he went and told his brothers about it. His brothers, Shem and Japheth, they grabbed a blanket. And they walked backwards into the tent and they covered up their father's shame. And when Noah woke up and found out that his son Ham had publicly shamed him, telling everybody about it, Noah pronounced a curse on Canaan. Canaan? Who's Canaan? Canaan was Ham's son. He said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Genesis 9.25. Noah perceived by the Holy Spirit that his son Ham was a bad apple, and so would his offspring breed. Thus, Canaan was cursed. In the book of Joshua, we're told of the conquest of the land of Canaan, and we read there that there was a similar command that the Israelites were to wipe out the entire people group, men, women, and children. Genesis 15, 16, we're told why. It says, as the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep. A thick and dreadful darkness came over him. And then the Lord said to him, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, that's Egypt, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here for the sin of the Amorites, that is the Canaanites, has not yet reached its full measure. So the Lord was patient for 400 years with the sin of the Amorites, and whatever their sin was, was taking place beforehand. The Amorites, that is, these Canaanites, were an irreparably corrupt people. They were beyond repair. They were a group of God-hating, adulterous, idolatrous, immoral people, and they regularly practiced infanticide. Like the people of the flood and the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, there's a certain point at which a nation has gone too far just as there's a point where an individual goes too far. Ecclesiastes 7.17 says, Do not be overwicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? God had given the Canaanites 400 years to repent. And it's not like they didn't have a witness. If you remember, in the land of Canaan is where Melchizedek, the king and priest of Salem, later Jerusalem, lived. And he was a great man, even Abraham brought him a tithe. Abraham tithed to Melchizedek. So it's not like the Canaanites didn't have a witness. In Jerusalem, in the heart of Canaan, was Melchizedek the priest. Hebrews talks about how great Melchizedek must have been. But they rejected Yahweh. They rejected the Lord and went after their sin. 400 years, though. I mean, our nation hasn't been around for 250. It speaks to God's incredible long-suffering towards evil and wickedness. Now, even though the nation was irreparably, irreparably corrupt, individuals still had a chance to repent, even up to the last moment. When Joshua sent the spies into the city of Jericho, they stayed at the house of a prostitute, Rahab. And when they used the word prostitute, it's likely she was a cult prostitute of a different God. But she converted to a worshiper of Yahweh 
and her whole family experienced salvation. Though the city and nation experienced judgment, Canaan and, and Jericho, the individual who turned to the Lord was still saved. You know, us pastors, we discuss together, much as you do at your homes, whether or not our country is past that point of no return. Are we irreparably corrupt? And if Nineveh could convert at the preaching of Jonah, who didn't even want to preach to them, I think there's hope for our country. Our, our people practice the same old sins with new labels and updated ways, sin 10.0.1, something like that. But it's all the same. Same operating system, really. In June, our nation devotes an entire month to celebrating sexual immorality and perversion. If we remain on this course and don't repent, it's certain that our country is destined to go the way of the Canaanites. I don't know if the Lord's going to give us 400 years or not to repent, but the Lord is, though long-suffering, there's a day of reckoning. But unlike the Canaanites, the Amalekites were not descendants of Ham. They were actually much more closely related to Israel, having been descended from Esau, Jacob's unbelieving brother. I've got a map for you. Um, so here you can see where the Amalekites lived, I think, yeah. Everybody get their magnifying glasses out and try to read what, what's going on here on the map with me. But, um, but really, to focus on here, so you could see the marked out area is the kingdom of Israel under the reign of David. Uh, the Arameans to the north, we're just going to look at the larger words on here. The Arameans to the north and uh, to the east, uh, the land of Aram. Jesus, in his day, the people spoke Aramaic. That comes from the Arameans. Their capital was the city of Damascus. It still stands today. And then the, to the right there and, and lower, we see Ammon and Moab, outside of, just outside of David's territory, to the south and to the east. And um, Ammon and Moab were both brothers and cousins. It's weird. It, it's not right. But if you remember that they were, um, Lot and his, and his wife and, and Lot's uh, two daughters, their uh, fiancés wouldn't come with them when they were uh, fleeing from Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, and then his wife didn't make it either. Um, so just Lot and his, uh, his two daughters, and they decided to get him drunk. It's like, we've got a lot of drunk people going on in Scripture right now. Noah and Lot, uh, they need to repent from that. Um, but uh, his daughters were like, we need to get, uh, uh, there's nobody left in the world because Sodom and the whole valley had been destroyed. So they thought nobody was left. So we got to get our dad to sleep with us so we can perpetuate the human race is what they thought. And the sons that each of the daughters had were Ammon and Moab. And so in scripture, they're actually really closely related to Israel because Abraham uh, was Lot's uncle. Um, and Ammon is, the city is still around today, right? The capital of, the, of Jordan is Ammon. Um, and then to the south of Moab was Edom, and uh, you remember Abraham's grandson Jacob and uh, his brother Esau. Uh, Esau was also called Edom, and, uh, and his land was to the south of Moab. And, and Edom, or Esau, had multiple wives, and he also had a concubine, and through his concubine, he had a son named Amalek, and the, the Amalekites lived to the west of Edom. Uh, and there to the south of Israel. So, um, you know, there's a, a map lesson for you today on where Amalek lived. Um, so that's where the Amalekites were from. They weren't really Canaanites. Um, so they shouldn't have had the judgment of the, that the Canaanites had. So what was up with the Amalekites? Well, 
In Deuteronomy chapter 25, verses 17 through 19, it says, remember what the Amalekites did to you along the way when you came out of Egypt. When you were weary and worn out, they met you on your journey and attacked all who were lagging behind. They had no fear of God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land he has given you to possess as an inheritance, you shall blot out the name of Amalek from under heaven. Do not forget. The Amalekites... After the Israelites were 40 years in the wilderness, worn out, tired, they were coming into the promised land. The Amalekites came, and they didn't just attack them. They attacked the rear. They attacked the tail. Everybody who was uh, tired, the sick, the elderly, that's who the Amalekites attacked, the back of the caravan of the Israelites. And so, uh, so that's what the Amalekites had done. But the Lord in judging them for what they had done, was also looking forward to what the Amalekites would do because Saul did not wipe them out. The Amalekites crop up a couple extra times in Scripture. And it's, one of them is later on in Samuel. When David was on the run for his life, uh, several years after the events of our reading this morning, he ended up settling in the land of the Philistines, just to the south and the west of Israel. And there he served as a vassal king, uh, a vassal for the Philistine king, and was eventually called up for war against Israel. So he was in a pickle there. He had to go to war for the Philistines against Israel. And when David and his men arrived at the Philistine camp, the other Philistine kings all looked around and were like, isn't this the same David who killed Goliath? Maybe he shouldn't fight on our team because he'll probably turn on us, right? So anyways, so they made... David go home, and when David returned to his hometown of Ziklag, they found the entire city burned to the ground. Everything was taken, wives, children, possessions, all taken by the Amalekites, Amalekites who were supposed to have been wiped out by Saul. But Saul was busy not obeying the Lord and trying to kill David instead. They were able to track them down, reclaim their possessions, but if Saul had been obedient to the Lord, he wouldn't have been hunting David, but this wouldn't have happened either. But this isn't the only time the Amalekites crop up in Scripture. In the book of Esther, it records certain events from the reign of Xerxes, the king, and his wife, Queen Esther. In this book, we're told how a high-ranking official, Haman, develops a deep personal hatred for a Jew named Mordecai, Esther's uncle. Haman wanted to kill Mordecai, but he wasn't satisfied with just killing Mordecai. He wanted to kill all the Jews in the Persian Empire. And so he planned to have them totally destroyed. He got the king's approval, and they sent letters all out. But ultimately, the plot was overturned, the people were saved, and Haman was, was killed. He had to face judgment. But I share this because Haman, it says he was an Agagite. Agag was the king of the Amalekites. So if King Saul had done his job, this wouldn't have happened. Apparently, King Saul spared not only the Amalekites who raided Ziklag, but the princes of the people who would eventually come to try to destroy the Jews again. And so we see that there's this judgment on the people of Canaan, but also this judgment on the Amalekites for their wickedness, their lack of fear for God, and how they want to wipe out the Jews. But also, I think we need to keep in mind that there is a general judgment of all men. When we come down to it, the fact is that all men die. And it is God's prerogative in deciding how each of us will eventually die. 
just as our ancestors died before us. Throughout Scripture, God sent judgments even on his people Israel. And we take this in stride. The prophets regularly harp on Israel and Judah for their unfaithfulness, their idolatry, their blasphemy, their hard hearts, their arrogance, their infanticide, their persecution of godly men. And in response, the Jews regularly had the prophets killed to shut them up. And in response, God sent wicked nations to administer judgment and justice upon the Israelites. The land was ravished by the sword, by famines and plague. The people resorted to cannibalism in an attempt to survive. As bad as this is, because we had such a record of Israel's unfaithfulness and God's centuries of pleading, the coming judgment makes a lot of sense. If only you would, they would have listened to the Lord and turned from their ways and lived. But then when we hear God using Israel to judge a wicked nation like the Amalekites, we're like, oh, is that really right? When we understood that, oh, well, we know what Israel did. They deserve that. But what about the Amalekites? God has the right to judge wickedness and sin. And he has the right to use the instruments that he chooses to do so. It is God who appoints man to live once and then to face judgment. But I think the most difficult part about this are the children. You know, why did God have the children killed? We already discussed the total corruption of the Canaanites, the utter sinfulness of the Amalekites, people beyond repair. We see that the offspring of Agag, Haman, uh, and what he did, but regardless of any future reality for an individual child, the reality that we have to come to face with, too, it, it's so obvious, is that many children die every day, every year. It's estimated that five million children under the age of five die every year. Two and a half million from infectious disease, 1.8 million from neonatal disorders, uh, three quarters of a million from non-communicable diseases, a quarter million from injuries and accidents, most of these deaths, 80%, are in sub-Saharan Africa and in Southeast Asia. But even in the U.S., 21,000 children die every year. In the, in the U.S., as in everywhere else in the world, one in five to one in eight pregnancies end in miscarriage. And in the U.S., last year, 600,000 babies were aborted, more than double the population of Spokane. So children die every day and the Lord allows that to happen. And some of you have experienced this. You've experienced losing a child. In some ways, as a parent, you live for your child, and when that is taken away, that good thing that you live for, the pain's crushing. It's unbearable. I can't describe it. I can't understand it fully. But as a believer in that moment, you come to a crossroads in the faith. Will I trust the Lord that he's good? and true, and right, or will I be done with him? Will I say the Lord was wrong, or will I say the Lord gives and the Lord takes away? Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm reminded of Horatio G. Spafford, author of the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. His wife and children sailed the Atlantic. They headed for England while he stayed behind tending to business matters. And he was later going to catch up with them. And he received a message from his wife from London that the ship had wrecked at sea and his four daughters, all of his children, were drowned in the deep. 
So if there was a man who could raise his fist to the heavens and curse God for his loss, for the death of a child, it would be a man like this. Instead, he hopped on the next ship, sailed across the ocean to visit his wife, his mourning, and upon reaching the place where the other ship had sunk, the captain called him up to his cabin and said, this is the place. And on that journey, Mr. Spafford began penning the words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Jesus tells us that the kingdom of heaven belongs to children. And so when God takes a child to be home with him, they cut to the front of the line that all men are in. And those of us who have lost little ones are consoled with that deep knowledge that we've left them in the good hands of our Lord Jesus Christ for safekeeping until we meet again. And if it were not enough uh, for all of these reasons to believe in the Lord uh, in regards to the question of, of what's really happening here, why are you allowing this, Lord? I want to read from Romans chapter 19, if you don't mind me going in for the kill here. Romans chapter 9, verses 19 through 21. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who's able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same clump of clay some pottery for special purpose and others for common use? We sit back and say, God has the right to run his universe. My kids in my house have little Lego guys everywhere. And none of them get to tell me how to run my house, right? They actually, the only way that they can move is if I take them and start moving them around. They have no life in themselves. They're not animated unless I move them around. And so are we with the Lord. He has the right to do what he wants with the universe. And wasn't that his reply, his answer to Job? When all the hardships came into Job's life, and Job said, who are you? Were you there when I made the earth? When I stretched out the heavens? When I made the seas and made the beach its boundary and said, you can't go any further? Were you there when I did all this? Were you there when I made all the creatures and decided how they were all going to function? Were you there? The answer is no, and and Job came to realize, Lord, I'm just a man, and I don't fully understand your ways. You know, God, God has given us men such latitude. He's given us the world to run around in, room to make decisions, questions to ask. We can dialogue. We can study. He's left his word open and available to each of us. But there comes a critical juncture where questioning must culminate in a decision. Is God truly God? Is, who he say, is, is he who he says he is? Is his son Jesus who he says he is? And will you accept him for who he says he is or will you hold out? We have time as long as it's called today to repent. The Lord is patient and long-suffering. Only there's a day when that patience expires. I like to think that you and I have a courtroom date with the Lord. He knows the time and place we don't yet. We haven't found that out. But it's a terrible thought for me to think that men will stand before the judge and give account for a life full of sin and hear a guilty verdict and an eternal sentence 
with no chance for bail or shortening of time. I'm not above that. That's what I deserve. But I'm covered. I have a lawyer named Jesus. He's going to testify about me to the judge and that he knows me. I have a plea bargain struck with the Lord where I've confessed my sin to him in exchange for absolution. And that's open to you too. And I have the Holy Spirit as a receipt of transaction, giving account for the fact that my sins have been paid for by Jesus. There won't be any questions asked of my sin for punishment, for my sin was fulfilled and punished at Calvary. And so all the questions about God's goodness in that moment will fade in light of the glory and splendor of His presence when He says, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Master. Do you have that same plea bargain? Do you have your sins taken care of? Do you trust the Lord that He is right and good and true? Maybe today is that day. Let's pray.